0: Turn, if you would, to the 11th chapter of the book of Luke. This week, a uh, British organization announced their annual winner of the uh, prize for the oddest book title. This year's winner, the title of the book was Managing a Dental Practice, the Genghis Khan Way. No, I have not read the book. Last year's winner, after the winner was announced, sales of the book went up 15,000%. I think that means they went from two copies to, what, 10? Last year's winner was Crocheting with Hyperbolic Planes, which beat out collectible, Collectible Spoons of the Third Reich. But anyway... Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 37. When Jesus had finished speaking, if you have a uh, red letter edition of the Bible, you see all the red before this, so you get some idea of what he's been talking about. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. Now, at first glance, that seems a little odd. We do not know the Pharisee's motivation for inviting him to dinner. Um, Whether it was curiosity, whether he wanted to trap him, whether he just wanted to understand what was going on. We're not told his motivation. But the Pharisee, as the leader of the community, invited Jesus to his home for dinner. Simple enough. So he went in and reclined at the table. Jesus accepted the invitation. But the Pharisee, noticing that Jesus did not first wash before the meal, was surprised. Now, we are not talking here about hygiene. We are not dealing here with washing your hands to get them clean before you eat a meal. What we are going to be talking about here is the ceremonial cleaning that the Pharisees would go through in order to cleanse the sin from the community around them from their hands. It was not just wash your hands at the sink. It was a process where you went through this ritual in order to cleanse yourself from the sin that you may have encountered when you were outside dealing with the riffraff. Jesus did not do this. As a home of a Pharisee, the implements necessary for doing this would have been available. Jesus could have done it. Jesus probably knew the procedure, or at least was familiar with it. If I had to place a guess, I would say he intentionally didn't do it because he's going to make a point. We're going to talk about the Pharisees and the teachers of the law in this chapter. If you look at, uh, this is my the NIV, the chapter heading, which is not part of the original, but it says six woes. He is going to chastise the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. We know throughout the scripture that the scripture says, Blessed is the man who does such. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger... Blessing means happiness, kind of a blessing on the person. The opposite of that is woe to the person who is doing evil. And that's what we're going to see here. There is a parallel passage in Matthew chapter 23, although the context is different. This one, Jesus is in the home of a Pharisee. You have to assume that there were More members of this sect around at the dinner, along with what we will refer to as the teachers of the law here in a moment. So they were all there, but it was a private event. By Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is telling the crowd, watch out for the Pharisees. Why? In most people's minds today, when they think of a Pharisee, they think, oh, They're the people that kept the law, therefore keeping the law is bad, therefore we shouldn't do it. Jesus never chastises them for keeping the law. Jesus chastises them for their hypocrisy in keeping the law. In fact, if you turn to the next chapter, when Jesus gets his disciples off alone, he tells them, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is... Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is living a life on the outside that doesn't match the life on the inside. And that is what he is accusing them of doing. So we're going to look at these six woes that he bestows upon the Pharisees. Verse 39. The Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and dish... But inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who make the outside make the inside also? But give what is inside the dish to the poor, and everything will be clean with you. Now, what we see here is a metaphor coming in and out. The metaphor is that of a dish. The reality, what he's really talking about, is the condition of the heart of the Pharisees. If I have a cup, the cup has an inside and it has an outside. Pretty simple stuff. If I'm going to drink out of this, I would prefer the inside and the outside be clean. Right? Sitting here washing the outside so it looks nice, while I know that the inside is full of dirt, does me no good. As Jesus said, the same person who makes the outside also makes the inside. So, Pharisees, you are very concerned with the outside of the cup. The ceremonial washing that prepares you for a meal. The ceremonial washing that cleanses you from the taint of the riffraff that you might have to associate with. But the inside of the cup is filthy. And that's what he's going to talk to them about. He's going to talk about why the inside of the cup, the inside of their lives doesn't match what is on the outside i mean if i start with a clean cup and let's say i'm on a picnic and i set the cup down on the ground and i pick it up and there's some dirt on the bottom you know i'm not going to lose a lot of sleep over the fact that the dirt is on the bottom it's a picnic okay i brush it off and i but if i'm on a picnic and the dirt gets inside the cup i'll want nothing to do with that i can tolerate it on the outside Because the inside is what is important. Now, I would obviously prefer it to be clean on the inside and the outside. Jesus is not excusing bad behavior because Jesus recognizes and Jesus realizes that there is a connection between what is on the inside and what is on the outside of a human being. Let's look at this passage. You foolish people, did not the one who make the outside make the inside also? Foolish people. Now, first off, you have to admit he's not being real nice to his host, right? He was nice enough to go to dinner. The host was not nice enough to not be surprised by Jesus' behavior. How many knots did I have in that sentence? So Jesus, being honest, as he normally does, probably having some idea of what the Pharisees are talking about amongst themselves, turns to them and says, You foolish people. Did not the one who make the outside make the inside also? And then he's going to tell them how to clean the inside of the cup. And it's kind of strange when you think about it. But give what is inside the dish to the poor, and everything will be clean with you. Huh. That's interesting. Last week, we dealt with the rich young ruler. Came to Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus lists off a half a dozen of the commandments. And the man, and I believe in all sincerity, says, I've done all of that. And Jesus turns to him and says, sell everything you have and give to the poor. And it says the man walked away because he had great wealth. The giving of the poor, taking that which is ours, and giving it to those who are in need is a demonstration of the condition of of the heart. Now, if we were over in the book of Romans, dealing with theology at a big level, we would deal with the fact that in order to cleanse the heart, you have to accept the blood of Jesus Christ that died for your sins. You accept his righteousness that is given to us, and that's what cleans the inside of the cup. But Jesus is dealing with what does that look like? What does it look like to have a clean heart? What it means is you take that which is inside the cup, that which is yours to give, be it your time, your energy, your money, your food, and you share it with those in need. Now, Jesus knows. Jesus knows that the Pharisees are going to have difficulty with this. Let's keep reading. We start the woes in verse 42. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. How many of you have ever had a small garden in, say, a window box? You know, just a box that sits in the window, and in it you grow some, maybe some herbs of some sort. I remember as a child, we would have, outside, we had a little uh, mint plant, whatever it's called. And every so often at dinner, one of us would run out there and we'd get, you know, pull off a leaf or two, and we'd bring it in and we'd drop it in our iced tea, okay? I guess as a child, we thought that was cool. But you know, I think we had like one of these plants, you know, and how many leaves can it produce? Well, enough, I guess. But let's say you had this one mint plant and it was growing in your yard and you're looking at it and you realize it has 10 leaves on it, 10. Now, you're a good keeper of the law. You're supposed to tithe a tenth of your crop. So you very meticulously go out there with your nail clippers and you clip off one leaf. You put it in an envelope and you take it to the church on Sunday and say, here is my tithe. I have meticulously kept the law. Now it is interesting. Jesus doesn't chastise them for doing that. In fact, he says you should have done that. You should have tithed. But what he really tells them was, you're worrying about the wrong thing. There is justice and mercy to be done in the world. And here you are clipping leaves off your mint plant so that you can show the world how righteous you are when you should have been pursuing justice and mercy. But you neglected justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. These two things are not mutually exclusive. We do that which God instructs us to do, but we show love to the world around us. And what we're going to see in the rest of these woes is that the Pharisees are woefully inadequate in showing love to those around them. They're not interested in it. What is their motivation? Is their motivation to be right with God? Maybe at one point that was their motivation. It appears that their primary motivation is Showing off to those around them. Let's keep going. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplace. They go to the synagogue, the church, and obviously there are the good seats, the not as good seats, the really good seats, the place of honor. Pharisees, you go to the synagogue, why? To learn about God? No. You go to synagogue, the synagogue because you want to be in that seat. You want to be in that place where people will see you and see how righteous you are. That's why you do it. You're either in that seat... Or you're sitting there plotting how to get into that seat. Because that's what you want. Now, at this point, we should have a slight digression. Why are we doing this lesson? What is the purpose of this? Is the purpose of this to make us all good little Pharisees? No. There's a couple of good purposes, and then there's a... Not very good purpose, if you would. Jesus, in the next chapter, warns the disciples about the leaven, the yeast, of the Pharisee. The recognition that if I allow a little piece of it into my life, a little piece of it into my community, it will grow like yeast does and will permeate through everything. The primary purpose of this lesson is that we are aware of the leaven the yeast of the pharisees so that when it enters our community we can say no i believe that's why jesus didn't ceremonially wash his hands when he entered this pharisee's house would there have been anything sinful with him doing it no i mean if People want you to wash your hands for 30 minutes or 30 seconds before you eat. It doesn't hurt you to do it. But he knew that by allowing that, he was allowing that leaven into his group of disciples. So the first reason we study the Pharisees is so that we can avoid it when it enters our community. But secondly, we study it Because there's a little bit of Pharisee in all of us. On a good day, it's a little bit. On a bad day, there's a whole lot of it. And while I don't want to beat ourselves over the head with it, I do want us to recognize that sometimes we are obsessed with the minor aspects of the Christian life. And we totally neglect the fact that God has called us to share love and mercy with those around us. We become obsessed with the color of the carpet in the church and less interested in the things of God. We go to a different church. We're on vacation. Or something. And we go to a different church. And you know what? They don't do things exactly like we do it. They must be wrong. No, probably not. They're just different. So we look at the leaven of the Pharisee that is coming in. And we look at the reality that some of us, all of us, most of us, have a tendency in that direction anyway. Now the bad reason and why we, the reason we don't do this is sometimes we want to use it as a club on other people. And unless you're Jesus Christ, who's real good at understanding the conditions of people's hearts, um, don't sit here with a smug feeling thinking, well, you're better than they are because they act like Pharisees. Because if you sit here with a smug feeling thinking that They're acting like Pharisees, and you feel good about that. That probably demonstrates that you, you get the rest of it. (laughs) Let's keep reading. Woe to you, because you love the most important seats in the synagogue and the greetings in the marketplace. They just love it when somebody comes up and says, oh, holy, great guy, Pharisee, welcome to my humble abode. Oh, they just love the adulation Woe to you, because you are like unmarked graves, which men walk over without knowing it. In the public version of this um, series of woes against the Pharisees, Jesus refers to them as whitewashed tombs. The idea that on the outside they look good, but what's inside a tomb? Death. That's all that's there. Here is a little bit different analogy. Let's say that there had been a burial. The body had been buried in the ground. And over the years, people just forgot about it. There was no tombstone. There was no marker. It was just there. Well, if I'm a good Pharisee and I walk over this grave, I've come in contact with the dead, I've come in contact with a grave, and I am technically unclean, even though I may not know about it. Even though I may not be aware of it, I have defiled myself by touching that which is dead. I have been corrupted by something that I don't even see. Now what Jesus is telling the Pharisees is you are that corrupting power in your community. You think you are bettering the community by your mere presence. And Jesus says, no, you are defiling the community, and you don't even know it. You are a dead thing That corrupts everything you come in contact with. And you don't know it. And they don't know it. But God knows it. You are an unmarked grave. That is corrupting the community in which you live. That's a pretty harsh thing to say. I mean let's face it. He's telling them. They're the ones that are messing up the society. They're the ones that are hindering the work of God in the community. That's pretty harsh. So harsh that in verse 45, one of the experts of the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. Duh. We have a division here, and I'm not sure I totally understand the division. We have the Pharisees, who were rigid keepers of the law and were, in fact, a religious community. And then we have the teachers of the law, which were rigorous interpreters of the law. And I'm sure there was a lot of intersection between these two groups. But the Pharisees, having been... Um, beaten up with the first three woes, this teacher of the law feels compelled to come to their defense. But all he really says is, Teacher, don't you know that you're insulting them? Now, if Jesus were a modern-day person, he would probably say, Yes, that was my intention. But he's not a modern-day person. So he changes his direction from the Pharisees, to the teachers of the law. And that's what gets us the next three woes. Yes, ma'am. Uh, teachers of the law commonly known as lawyers? Well, yeah. <laughs> Maybe we shouldn't go there. Experts in the Oh, anyway. Jesus replied... And you, experts of the law, woe to you because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourself will not lift one finger to help them. What was the burden that they were dumping on the people? Come on, this is easy. Huh? The law. Not just the law, more law. Okay? It's like I come up to you and I give you ten laws. It hasn't stopped. We're not going to talk about politics. We're not going to talk about law. No. Let's say that I give you ten laws, and you can't keep them. Either they're too hard, you don't understand them, you just don't want to, whatever it is. So you can't keep the ten. So my solution, since you can't keep the ten, is to give you twenty more Wait a minute, that's not much of a solution. And you don't keep those either, so my solution is to give you 50 more. And I continue, continue to pile upon you this burden of a lifestyle that you cannot live. You just can't do it. While, at the same time, I refuse to help you in any way. I mean, I hate to say this, but I've seen this, you know. <clears throat> In my kids, you'll have a child who's trying to, say, carry a, a, a bag of groceries. And it's too, really too heavy for them. They can kind of almost, but they can't just, they just can't do it. And one of the other children will look at them and say, you're not carrying it right. And I want to look and go, why don't you help them? Well, that would be too much work. It's so much more fun to sit here and criticize the way they're carrying it than to actually help them do it in the first place. And that's the complaint against these experts, these teachers of the law. They have heaped rules and regulations upon the people without offering the most basic help to the people to help them live a righteous life. Why? Because it's so much more fun to sit on the side and criticize. I can just envision what's happening, okay? I and my expert of the law friends are sitting at dinner, and we saw somebody in town do something bad. Did you see that child? That child stole an apple from the cart and we sit here you know this small group of us and we start coming up with new rules and regulations to figure out how to keep this abomination from occurring again in our community isn't that a lot easier than trying to figure out why this child needed the apple in the first place isn't that a lot more fun than trying to understand what is driving these problems within the community? Oh, let's make up some more rules. That's what we do. We are experts of the law. Jesus wasn't very nice to the Pharisees or the teachers of the law. I will try to be real nice, okay? Okay. But you have to ask yourself sometimes, in what sense do we as a Christian community take a lot more pleasure in sitting here condemning those out there than actually trying to go out there and help those who are in need? Hmm, but it's so much nicer in here. I mean, let's face it, it is nicer in here. What did Jesus tell them at the very beginning? The person who made the inside made the outside. If you want the inside to, clean, to be clean, take some of that food that's inside, go out there, go out there and give it to the poor. Don't make a big deal about it. Don't do it to show off. Just do it. Mm. We'd better keep reading quick. Woe to you because you build tombs for the prophets, and it was your forefathers who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your forefathers did. They killed the prophets, and you built the... For all. Wow, that's quite a condemnation. You're gonna be responsible for the blood of all the prophets that have been killed. Gosh. Let's look just real quick at Zechariah. This is not the prophet Zechariah who wrote the book. This is an earlier Zechariah. Okay? In 2nd Chronicles chapter 24 verse 20 and 21, we have yet another wicked king come to power. I don't remember which one it was, but it was one of the wicked ones. And we're told in 2nd Chronicles 24 verse 20, then the spirit of God came upon Zechariah, son of Joada the priest. He stood before the people and said, "This is what God says, why do you disobey the Lord's commands?" You will not prosper because you have forsaken the Lord. He has forsaken you. Pretty bold message. Pretty bold message when you understand we've got a bad king on the throne. We've got a bad king surrounded by bad people. And Zechariah comes into the community and says, God wants to know why you're not doing what God has instructed you to do. Since you refuse to do what God instructed you to do, God is forsaking you. That's pretty bad. How do the people respond? But they plotted against him, and by order of the king they stoned him to death in the courtyard of the Lord's temple. Notice, by the order of the king. (coughs) So, fast forward... Umpteen hundred years later, and you have Jesus talking to the Pharisees and the experts of the law. If you are a religious person, a righteous person, who in this story would you want to be associated with? Come on, this is an easy part of it. Who would you want to be associated with? God. God. Which would be Zachariah. You would want to be able to say, Zachariah was one of us. Zachariah did what we would do if we were in the same situation. I mean, let's face it, here we are in 21st century America, and we would like to think, if the times required it, you know, we could be. John Calvin, or we could be Jonathan Edwards, or we could be John Huss and be martyred for our faith. That's the kind of person we want to associate with. Those in history who stood up and did what God wanted them to do. But Jesus has something else to tell them. He's telling them, you're on the wrong side of this battle. You're not Zachariah. You're not the person speaking the voice of God to the community that doesn't want to hear. You're the community that doesn't want to hear. You're building tombs for the prophets when in reality it is your forefathers, it is your type of people who were doing the killing in the first place. but something worse is going to happen because the prophet is in your midst right now. Not just any prophet, the word of God, the Messiah is in your midst right now and you are going to kill him. And The guilt that will be on your shoulders will exceed the guilt of all those who came before you. All your forefathers killed the true prophets. But you are going to kill the prophet. And you know what? You will be responsible for all of it. That's a pretty strong statement. That's a real strong statement. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. That's quite a span in history. What happened to Abel? Killed by Cain. Why was he killed? Jealousy. Why was Cain jealous of Abel? Because God accepted Abel's sacrifice and did not accept Cain's sacrifice. So Cain, in jealousy, murdered Abel. One was acceptable to God. Zachariah was acceptable to God. And those who follow the line of Cain cannot stand it. They killed Abel, they killed Cain, I mean they killed Abel, they killed Zechariah, and now they're going to kill Jesus. And that's what he's accusing them of. You're on the wrong side of this story. You think you're on the right side, but your forefathers were the ones that killed all the prophets in the same way that you are jealous and envious of the way that God is working apart from you, so was Cain. So were the individuals in this story of Zechariah who ended up killing Zechariah. Just out of curiosity, compare that with John the Baptist. You remember the disciples came to John and said, you know what, all of your disciples are leaving to go follow this upstart named Jesus. Now, if John had been a Pharisee, he would have tried to figure out how to get them back. But what did John say? He must increase and I must decrease. They're going the right direction. That's what the Pharisees could not accept. They couldn't accept their loss of power and influence in the community in which they lived. Let's keep reading. Woe to you, experts of the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who were entering. Experts of the law. What would the experts of the law have studied at this point in history? They would have studied the Old Testament. That's what they would have been experts in. And Jesus is telling them. In that. In that body of knowledge. Is the knowledge. That the people need. And you haven't given it to them. So what is that knowledge? Well. We know that Jesus, after the resurrection, when he was walking the road, he talked with some individuals on the road to Emmaus. And we're told that he, beginning in the Old Testament, showed them why the Christ must suffer and die. He showed them the gospel in the Old Testament. Now, if I had 50 more hours for this lesson... We could talk about that at length. But let's just look at one piece of it, and that is the coming of the Messiah. The Messiah was coming to save the people. These experts of the law knew that. They had studied the Old Testament. They had studied the writings of the prophets. They knew, or they should have known, But instead of proclaiming to the people the joy of the coming Messiah, they were continuing to heap burdens on the people. Let's say that I go into the community, not the Christian community, the community out there. I go into a group of unbelievers and I begin... To talk to them in this way. You know what? Your life is pretty wretched. Your sexual morals are horrible. Your dress is sloppy. Your eating habits are disgusting. And don't get me started on your work habits. Now, when you fix all those things, when you get all of those things straightened out, come to me. And I'll talk to you about letting you into our church. What are they going to tell me to do? Or where are they going to tell me to go? (laughs) It's a religious context. And you know what? All those things may be true. They really might. Their sexual morals may be wretched. Their work habits may be horrible. And let's not talk about their dress. That all may be true, but it's irrelevant. What they need is the gospel. What these people at this point in history that this story is taking place needed was they needed to be taught about the reality of the coming Messiah. And that was not what was being taught to them. What was being taught is why they needed to clean up their life, why they needed to follow the rules and regulations of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Rules and regulations, by the way, which the average individual could not have kept and lived any life at all. I mean, the Pharisees were able to be Pharisees because they were professionals at it. They did that for a living. Go figure. The average person couldn't have done it. You just couldn't. It was a burden that was unkeepable. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were not helping them. So Jesus was invited to dinner at a Pharisee's home. And let's just assume it was a nice thing for the guy to do, and it was nice of Jesus to attend. But they made some comment that he wasn't being a very good Pharisee. So Jesus let them have it. I might add, though, at least he did it in private. This whole chapter, I mean this last half of this chapter, is a private conversation at a private dinner. They could have responded to it in a positive manner. By the time we get to the version of it in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is telling the crowds... I've tried to talk to them in private, and it got nowhere. Let me warn you about the Pharisees. The Pharisees at this dinner party could have responded in a positive manner. But what happened? When Jesus left there, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely And to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. They didn't sit there and think, maybe this guy is the Messiah. Maybe we better investigate it. Maybe we better look at his claims. Maybe we. No. This guy is a threat to us, he isn't like us. And the battle was intensified. And they looked and looked and looked for a way to trap him. Jesus never criticizes the Pharisees for obeying the commands of God. In fact, elsewhere he says, they teach the law. And you should listen to them when they teach the law. Just don't act like they do. Because they're hypocrites. The law is good. We see this in Romans. The law is good and perfect. Now, we can't keep it because we're fallen sinners. But the law is okay. The leaven, the yeast of the Pharisees is the hypocrisy that says, I'm better than you. Therefore, let me direct your life. And Jesus says, no. Go ahead, Jerry. How much longer did the Pharisees I don't know. I assume that as a group, they lasted until the uh, destruction of Jerusalem. But that's just an assumption on my part. Uh, in reality, they've always existed and always will. Just not by name. Okay. I don't know. In fact, I'll, I'll go look that up. When the last time in history somebody actually called themselves a Pharisee and meant something good by it? (laughs) I mean, it's an interesting question, right? I mean, these people obviously thought calling themselves a Pharisee was a good thing. Today we look at it and we go, oh, yes. Was the sacrificial system still in play at that time or was it fading? The temple was still in existence, so there was a sacrificial system. With the collapse of the temple, that went away, too. And there's no sacrificial system in place today. It looks to me like that. So one of the questions we went through four or five weeks back over in Luke chapter 9 says, what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world? And loses his own soul. Could be tied right into this. Definitely. What does it profit a man... If everyone thinks he's righteous, except God. (laughs) If everyone thinks that he's doing the right things, except God. What does it profit a man? Anyway, that is the conclusion. Why do we teach this? Because these roots of pharisaical behavior are still alive and well. They're alive and well out there. And unfortunately, they're alive and well in our hearts today. And we need to examine ourselves so that we can deal with them. Are we helping the community, helping others with the burdens of life? Or are we just piling more burdens on them? Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Thank you, thank you for the mercy and the grace that you bestow upon us. And thank you that you are the one that does, in fact, clean the inside as well as the outside. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. One second.